here with uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers today, and it's a real joy to be with him. I've uh, followed his ministry for a few months now, and I uh, have really enjoyed uh, his uh, podcast on Soteriology 101. And uh, Leighton, we're glad to have you today. And uh, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself, tell us uh, sure. who you are, give us the biographical sketch of Leighton Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was born a, a young boy. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm a Texas kid. I grew uh, raised in Texas and um, raised as a Southern Baptist in Texas. And um, I currently work at uh, the Texas Baptist State Convention as the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics. Uh, many people uh, online know me through the Sociology 101 podcast that I started about five years ago. Uh, but uh, that's not my full-time job. That's kind of something I do on the side. My 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 passion and Things that I've done for my entire adult life really revolve around evangelism and winning the loss and really trying to help uh, people understand apologetically what we believe and why we believe it uh, as, as Christians. Um, and so that's where I spend a bulk of my time. Uh, I, I did my dissertation on the doctrine of sociology because I'm a former Calvinist and came out of Calvinism. So I ended up writing on that topic, uh, especially as it relates to the Southern Baptist Convention, my home convention. And, uh, and, and the effect that's, that Calvinism and the rise of Calvinism has had on the convention. Uh, and I, I wrote on, on that on my dissertation. And because of that, I have kind of a unique perspective as a, a theology professor for Trinity Seminary, a, a state denominational leader in evangelism. Uh, and so I ended up at, at a, out of a theology class there at Dallas Baptist University that I happened to be teaching. Um, I was teaching on this topic on one of our, uh, uh, one of the, uh, classes that we had there at DBU and the students just lit up asking questions about uh, Calvinism and election predestination. And I realized, man, this is really a hot button topic among uh, young people today. And, uh, and I ended up recording some extra material to put on the webinar portion of the, the, the class, uh, which I made completely voluntary. I mean, they didn't have to watch it, but all but one of the students you could see who had actually watched the, the the material and all but one of them watched all of it. And it was, it was really funny, Daryl, that all the other lectures I'd put on there, you had maybe one or two comments under each one of the lectures under the one on Calvinism and provisionism, the perspective that I hold to, there were just dozens upon dozens, upon dozens, countless comments. And then, and then, excuse me, sub comments around that. And it's just, it, they just, and they didn't even have to, watch this. It was, it's voluntary. And it, in other words, it became very, very uh, clear to me that this was scratching an itch uh, among uh, people. And and so one of the students had suggested, what if you start a podcast? And I was like, what, what's that? What do, how, do I do, <laughs> how do I do that? I don't even know what that means. And so I began to research it a little bit. And I honestly thought maybe a couple hundred people might watch it eventually uh, and never, never thought, you know, uh, it would, it would have the impact that it's had. And I thank God for that. Uh, and we're just trying, I'm just trying to provide a voice from the other perspective. Uh, one of the pet peeves I had was that it seemed as if Calvinism was being uh, represented really, really, really strongly online uh, and anything else wasn't. And, and I really wanted to try to at least provide an alternative to the Calvinistic interpretations that were uh, predominantly seen through most of the online ministries, uh, and 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 try to say, hey, I just want to educate uh, people to other sources that are out there because there are some really good scholars from the non-Calvinistic vantage point, but a lot of people just don't know who they are, and so I want I want to try to counterbalance a little bit of that that growth uh, of Calvinism within our convention and help people to see that there are deep, exegetical, robust answers from the non-Calvinistic perspective. Good. That's that's interesting to to kind of hear how it got started. I don't know that I'd ever heard that story, so I appreciate you sharing that. Um, we uh, I, I'm a church planner in Erie, Pennsylvania. We've been here for a few years now, and uh, most of our folks are either fairly new Christians or you know don't have a deep uh, theological uh, background. You might say. Right. So if you were going. You know, if you were at our church or at another church plant and maybe talking to a new Christian or a new believer and they kind of heard you using that terminology, how would you explain to a new believer? How would you explain what we might call in layman's terms what Calvinism is in a nutshell and, and kind of sure. the difference 
the difference between that and what uh, what you believe Scripture teaches? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, to be fair, there, Calvinism is not a monolithic group. Uh, you know, John Piper is probably the most well-known Calvinistic, you know, pastor, uh, even scholar. He's written a lot of scholarly work as well. He's probably the most influential Calvinist in the world today, I would say. Um, and he does not represent all forms of reformed thinking. In fact, I know a lot of Calvinists that don't agree with John Calvin, uh, John Calvin or John Piper on a lot of things. John MacArthur is another really, really well-known Calvinist leaning, some might say, because he's not always been full, you know, full board uh, Calvinistic in all of his doctrines and all of his teachings over the years. And so it, it's not a monolithic group. And so you, you're going to have different forms and flavors of what is known as Calvinism. So the most broad umbrella that I could paint would be to say Calvinism teaches that God in eternity past chose unilaterally or unconditionally to save certain people and to leave the rest without the hope of salvation. In other words, uh, he picks some people and he effectuates or causes them to their heart to change and causes them to want to believe and to follow Jesus uh, through some uh, kind of a miracle. He, he, in a sense, he gives faith to the people that are called the elect. And so if you happen to be one of the elect people that God chose in eternity past, then he will give you faith. He will give you a new heart and cause you to want to believe and follow him. And therefore, anyone who doesn't want to follow God and doesn't want to believe in the gospel, ultimately, you have to conclude that God did not send Jesus to die for them. He did not really want them salvifically, uh, and he passed over them in eternity past, so to speak, let them go their own way. And so Calvinists are not trying to say that God uh, forces people uh, against their will to be Christians and then forces everybody else against their will to reject uh, Christ. What they're saying is, is that everyone is born because of the sin of Adam in a, a condition where they automatically just hate God and hate the gospel. And they will always reject the God and they will always reject the gospel because they have a desire that's that's bent against anything that comes from God. Unless God chose you before you were born and effectuates a change of nature, gives you a new heart, they may say, or opens your eyes to where you will see the beauty of Christ and you will be drawn to him effectually, irresistibly. If you're one of the elect, in other words, you will certainly unchangeably be saved and and you will remain in Christ and you will continue all the way until uh, your glorification into heaven if you happen to be one of those people unilaterally chosen prior to uh, your existence. Um, provisionists like myself, much like Arminianism, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Calvinism versus Arminianism. I don't like the label Arminian because it's based upon a man, one. Two, I don't agree with a, a, a lot of the premise uh, the premises of the Cal uh, of the Calvinism Arminianism grid. I think they've made some mistakes uh, in the grid that they've kind of adopted. It's a Westernized perspective in my in my in my estimation, and so I've kind of removed myself from that grid. And I don't like isms. I don't really like even the fact that I'm called a provisionist or, a pro or provisionism is is sometimes what it's referred to as. I, really, it's just I I believe that God provides. That that's it. People are lost but God provides for the sins of the world. That's why I have this the picture behind me. God provides for every single man, woman, boy, and girl because he's a good God. He's a gracious God. And no one dies, therefore, for lack of provision or a lack of God's desire. No one was reborn. No one was born rejected by their maker as if God created some people for reprobation and some people for salvation. We reject that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that concept. We believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that whosoever can believe and follow Christ and thus be saved, that the good news is for all peoples, meaning every single individual, not just for all kinds of people, not just for the elect from all nations, but literally every single person has the hope and the possibility of accepting the appeal of the gospel so as to be saved. Um, and so I think that pretty much paints the differences between our worldview. Uh, the Calvinist is, is believes in a particular or limited atonement, that it's salvation is only for the elect that he's chosen before the foundation of the world for 
reasons that we are we are not aware of. In other words, he chose one person over another for reasons he does not reveal to us. It's just hidden within the secret counsel of his will. And therefore, it's a unilateral decision. It's not based upon foreseeing their faith or something like that uh, on Calvinism. Whereas on our perspective, we, would, we believe that we are elect insofar as we are in Christ. He is the elect one. He is the pre-existent one. We didn't pre-exist prior to creation. Christ did. He is the elect one. And therefore, we are elect insofar as we are in Christ through faith. And so if, if we're born in Adam, but if we choose to believe in the gospel and accept the, the, the gospel appeal, then we are elect in the son. We are elect in Christ. And therefore, the blessings that God has predestined from the beginning are ours because he is destined beforehand. That's what predestination is, destined beforehand what will come of those who are in Christ through faith. But that's your responsibility to put your faith in Christ. And, you know, we uh, believe in election and we believe in predestination. Absolutely. Uh, I think sometimes we might not mean the same things <laughs> when we use that terminology. Uh, but but we we don't deny the doctrine of election or predestination. We we just think that what the Bible teaches about those things are a little different than our Calvinist brothers and sisters. Right? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So I read a quote, and I I wish I'd have written down the source. I don't remember who it was, but um, basically the quote says, "As men get older, they become more Calvinistic." And uh, that's not obviously true with you, because as you got older. Uh, you uh, understood that there were some things about Calvinism that you didn't feel was compatible with what you were reading or seeing in Scripture. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Kind of take us through your journey from being what would be considered a Calvinist to to uh, provisionist. Yeah, I was raised in a Southern Baptist home. My dad was a youth pastor. Uh, and my mom, the school nurse. And so they're very loving, godly parents who are still uh, very close friends to me today. They've never believed in Calvinism. They never adopted a system. Um, but when I went off to uh, Bible college, uh, Hardin Simmons University is where I went, and I majored in theology. Uh, I was a theology geek from very early on. I loved studying different scriptures and passages and going deep into text and I loved all of that. And when I went off to Hardin Simmons, I was introduced to a, uh, a friend who's still a friend to me today. Uh, his name's Steve. Um, and uh, he was starting a ministry there, ironically called, uh, it was called Grace, but it was based upon Louis Giglio's ministry, ironically called Choice. And so I thought that was it's kind of fun. But uh, anyway, he was starting a ministry there at Hardin Simmons that was much like the Choice ministry that was started by Louis there at Baylor. And um, he was starting a, a, a group of guys coming together to pray for this ministry and to be a leadership team. And I was the first one to show up in his office and to pray with him. Um, and I, I had known him through my father who worked in Southern Baptist life. And so um, I, I, I had a reason to kind of show up because I'd already had an introduction over the phone to this man. And so um, great guy, one of the most loving, he, he's one of those kind of guys, Steve's one of those kind of guys that make you feel like you're the most important person in the world and just genuinely loves people. And he happened to be Calvinistic. He happened to believe in Calvinism. And he introduced me to the doctrines, kind of surfacey, uh, on the surface level of things. He gave me a book by John MacArthur called Ashamed of the Gospel that I read actually my after my freshman year when I was in Russia uh, on a mission trip. And I read it. We didn't have television or anything else. So all I had to do was read books. And so I'd read a bunch of theology books. And one of them was Ashamed of the Gospel by MacArthur. And Ashamed of the Gospel is not about Calvinism. It's about pragmatism and uh, the church that's become kind of the seeker-sensitive kind of church that's just trying to become a mile wide and an inch deep and just trying to win people through show and, and, and entertainment and those kinds of things. And man, I was soaking this up because I was surrounded by that kind of mentality within the church. And, and this John MacArthur, man, he was deep uh, and exegetical and he wasn't, he wouldn't fallen for this mile wide inch deep stuff. He wasn't, I, he was saying things like, man, I, I, I'm not worried about what the seeker wants. I'm worried about what God wants. I, I want my church to be about pleasing the father, not about pleasing the lost person. And man, that was resonating with me. And I just was really loving what I was reading. Um, and, and pragmatism is this concept as an idea that, you know, whatever works must be right. 
So if you, if it works to grow a church doing whatever it is you're doing, then it must be okay. And and ashamed of the gospel is just a, kind of a rebuke of that kind of mindset to say we can't sacrifice the gospel and exegetical preaching uh, for the sake of the show and entertainment and tickling the ears. And so, man, I just loved what he was having to say. But then there's just one little section in there of that book that hit on Calvinism. And it, and it introduced me to Romans 9. It quotes from Ephesians 1 and a couple of passages. And I'd never read those passages with that in my mind. I, I never understood how predestination was was taught in Scripture. And it was inter- being introduced to me as a 19-year-old for the very first time by somebody that I was very much uh, resonating with with regard to all these other things that he was saying. And, and so he was really kind of painting this dichotomy of the you know, the, the Olsteins of the world, you know, the surface level, even maybe even Rick Warren's, um, who I I know is not, not all bad, not everything. I'm not trying to throw Rick Warren under the bus here, but he's a lot more of the seeker sensitive model of, of church. And it seemed like what MacArthur was doing is either you're exegetical and deep and robust, and you believe in Calvinism, or you're kind of the namby pamby, easy believism, Osteen type of surface level topical guys that are just trying to grow big buildings and big churches. And, and so I kind of bought into this dichotomy of people and I thought, how I, I want to be deep. I want to be exegetical. I want to be sound in my theology. And so I, brother, I just, I kind of bought in hook, line and sinker into the whole thing. And that hooked me. Uh, and the next book I read was R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. Little short book. It's, I read it in one sitting. And then the next day I read it again. And, and, and I just marked it up, just digested it. And man, from that point on, I was full-blown five-point cage stage Calvinist. And what I mean by that is I was mad that my church all my life had never taught me the doctrines of grace. They never taught me tulip. They never taught me predestination and election. God chose me. For goodness sake, why in the world would you not choose something so important as God picked me before the creation of the world and chose to save me by his effectual grace? Why in the world has that been hidden from me? And now it's my job as a Calvinist, the new Calvinist that I was, to make sure everybody else knew about it. And that's exactly what I went about doing, (laughs) trying to not only evangelize for the gospel, but evangelize for Calvin. And let people know what Calvinism was teaching and why we need to understand what Romans 9 is saying. Don't you see Romans? Haven't you ever read Romans 9 before? What's wrong with you? Haven't you read Ephesians 1? Predestination, predestination, predestination. Why aren't you teaching this? And so I was all on board with uh, these things. Um, years pass. Um, I eventually left my cage stage where I didn't feel like I had to try to convince everybody I talked to to believe Calvinism. Um, I calmed down a little bit. Uh, and years pass, and I was actually reading a book by A.W. Tozer. Uh, and the reason I got turned on to A.W. Tozer, ironically, was because of John Piper, who I had become a fan of. I considered myself a Piperite to some extent. Uh, still love John Piper, by the way. Uh, I, I had John Piper come and speak at our Youth Evangelism Conference that I was a director of at the time, and one of the most humble, godly men I've ever had the pleasure of working with, just like Steve. I mean, if, if people have the concept or idea that if you're a Calvinist, you must be a mean, you know, angry person because that's what you've witnessed online, then you didn't know the Calvinists that I knew. I mean, the Calvinists that I knew were very godly, kind, evangelistic, mission-hearted people. Um, and so uh, if, if they hadn't been, I would have never been probably one into Calvinism, to be honest with you, because that would have never worked for me. Um, and so Piper was, was very influential. And whenever he was quoting from Tozer and about every other book, I started thinking, well, maybe I should read Tozer. And so I read Tozer. I think it was Knowing God. Um, I can't remember for sure which book it was off the top of my head. But anyway, I'm reading the book and he's saying some things that aren't fitting my ter- my, my paradigm of Calvinism. He's, he's pretty much denouncing Calvinism outright in, in some of his writings. And I'm going, Tozer's not a Calvinist? How is that possible? I mean, he's smart, he's exegetical, he's not pragmatist. I mean, he is all about preaching exegetically and hardcore and calling sinners sinners and and man, a lot how in the world is he not a Calvinist? Because what I tended to do is if I found somebody who was smart 
and in depth and serious, I just assumed they were one of us. You know, <laughs> they had to be one of us. I thought C.S. Lewis was a Calvinist for the longest time until I started studying a little bit more and found out he, he actually spoke out against Calvinism, um, as, did w, as, as, did, as did Tozer. And this is what kind of rocked my world, you know, my little bubble I had surrounded myself with, which, by the way, in that same group there at Hardin-Simmons, Matt Chandler was the year behind me. Um, and Matt Chandler was a, a part of that same ministry, uh, the Grace Ministries with Steve. Um, and, uh, of course, he was discipled by the same guy and one Matt Chandler into Calvinism as well. Uh, and I remember Chris, a guy named Chris and, and Chandler talking in the student center over uh, limited atonement, debating over limited atonement. Now, Matt was, at the time did not believe in limited atonement. Um, and a guy named Chris was trying to convince him. And I sat down and tried to help convince uh, Matt Chandler of limited atonement. Uh, so uh, kind of a fun story about, behind all that. But nevertheless, uh, years pass. I'm reading Tozer. I'm probably closer to my 30s now when this is happening. And uh, it doesn't fit my paradigm. And I had debated when I was in high school and college. And one of the things you learn to do when you debate is to kind of take both sides of an argument. And I had, I, I had remembered doing that and how hard it was to kind of drop your preconceptions and take the other perspective. But I, I started thinking to myself, you know what, I've never really done that with this particular debate. Um, I've always just assumed that the Armenians were kind of like Joe Olstein and not worth really taking seriously. They're just kind of like, yeah, they, they mean well, but the only argument they have is to repeat John 3.16 over and over again, and they really don't have much else to say about the topic. And so I just kind of look down at them as being, you know, they meant well, like my parents. They mean well, they want to win people to Jesus, and they love the Lord, but they're just not serious exegetes like I am. Um, and so that's kind of the way I viewed the non-Calvinist of the world. And so when I, when I set out in this journey saying, okay, why did somebody smart like Tozer reject Calvinism. What's wrong with him? What, what, maybe he misunderstands it or something. And I began to study what he was teaching and why he was teaching it. And then I would start looking at the people he was referencing. And I would start looking at even Arminius himself. And I remember the first time I read Jacobus Arminius. Um, and I'm, again, I don't consider myself an Arminian, but the man is anything but shallow. <laughs> If you read Jacobus Arminius, he's, he sounds like a Calvinist. I mean, he, is, he sounds very, very high on God's providence and high on sovereignty and uh, huge doctrines of depravity and all the, I mean, he sounds like a Calvinist today. And so when I was reading through him, I just got, why, is, why, is, why are so people so hard on Arminius? He sounds, he sounds pretty in depth here. What's going on? And so I began to study why he was rejecting Calvin's teaching on these particular points. And I began to understand kind of where he was coming from. Um, and the way I've put it on my program, as you, you may know, Daryl, is, you know, I talk about the duck and the rabbit. You know, there's a picture that looks, they're called bleaks, and they look like a duck and a rabbit at the same picture, or a male, uh, or old woman and a young woman. You've seen them all before. Um, and if you read a passage one way, because that's the way you were taught, it's, it's like that picture. You, you come to the picture and you're explained, this is a duck. And, and you see the duck and that's what you're explained from the very beginning. This is a duck. Then somebody else comes along years later and starts going, no, 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 guy. Hey, man, it's not a duck. That's a rabbit. Well, no, 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 no. It's a duck. You're just blind. You're just not getting it. Um, you know that feeling that you have when you first see the old woman or the young woman or the duck. and the rabbit. You, you see both of them. And it kind of comes, oh, yeah. Well, now I can see the duck. Now, now I can see the rabbit. Now I see what you're talking about. I don't agree with you. I still think he's talking about the duck, but I get what you're saying. I, I understand how you're seeing it that way. Well, that's, that kind of happened to me with the Arminian perspective or the non-Calvinistic reading of Romans 9, for example, or Ephesians 1, where all of a sudden it kind of hits me, oh, uh, there are some really deep scholars who really have some good arguments as to why Romans 9 doesn't mean what I used to think it means. Um, and there was a time there that I went through that where I was thinking to myself, I, I remember thinking this to myself, I remember thinking, I don't know how to answer that argument as a Calvinist, but I bet Piper would. I bet R.C. Sproul would. I can't do it because I'm just a little old light and flowers, but I bet they could. 
And so I started looking for the answers to some of the arguments that Arminius and other scholars from this side were bringing. And I kept, I kept running into what I, I guess call walls because I wasn't finding very sufficient answers. In other words, I was finding out that the emperor had no clothes, so to speak. I, this, I mean, this, this isn't working. They're, they're not, they're not getting any better answers than what I used to think the Arminians weren't giving back when I was a Calvinist. And I wasn't happy with the answers that they were given. Uh, and I, 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 once I began to see the other side clearly and begin to objectively evaluate both the duck and the rabbit, so to speak, then I began to be more and more convinced that it was less like a duck and more like a rabbit. And eventually, really white knuckling it because I did not want to let go of Calvinism. I, I didn't want to be seen by my Calvinistic friends like I used to look at Arminians. Um, I used to look down my nose at them as just not quite that serious and exegetical and they're not bright enough to get it. I, I knew that a lot of my buddies were going to start seeing me that way if I denounced Calvinism. And, and that was hard to do. And I kept it quiet for a while, to be honest with you. I was kind of a closet non-Calvinist for a while because I didn't want people to know that I wasn't deep anymore or whatever they, they might have thought about me. And so it wasn't until I started my doctoral program and started writing on the subject. And again, like I said, took, you know, started teaching um, apologetic, or apologetics and theology classes and started talking on this topic uh, in my classes that I began to kind of become more vocal about it. Uh, and again, like I said, I, had, I, I did not set out to start a Sociology 101 podcast that was going to combat Calvinism. It kind of grew into that over a period of, of time. So that was probably a lot longer than what you were wanting to get, but that, that's, no, that's, that's, that's the whole story. Yeah. I'd heard part of that before in some of your, your videos, but uh, uh, it was good to, to kind of re refresh my memory on that. Um, and, and so you said for about the last five years or so, you've been um, doing the, the Soteriology 101 ministry. Um, yeah. I came out of Calvinism in my, early thirties, I uh, started kind of reading, I started that kind of process about 28, 29, when I started kind of coming out of it. And it's about, about, about the age of 30 ish that I really abandoned Calvinism. Uh, so about 10 years, uh, 10 to 11 years, depending on the math, cause I was kind of quasi one way or the other and right. part of that, but um, that, that I remained as, as a, as a Calvinist. And then throughout my thirties, I hardly even brought it up and talked about it. I'm, I'm 46 now. And so I think it's about 41 or so when I started the broadcast. And so um, that gives you kind of a timeline. So why do you feel like this is a healthy discussion to have within the body of Christ? I know there's some people that, that kind of feel like this is a detriment to right. the body of Christ or a detriment to our witness um, to the world or, or whatever when they see Christians kind of debating about different issues that are not um, what we might call, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're not calling the question the deity of Christ or calling the question the virgin birth right. or any of those kind of fundamentals Essent of the Essentials. Faith. Essentials, yes. yes. Right. But why do you feel like, and I feel like you do because of your ministry, why do you feel like this is a healthy discussion that, that we do need to be having? Right. How, it, how can it, we keep yeah. it healthy? Because it, it, I think it can get unhealthy. Sure. Yeah. No, that's another another great question. Um, any false misunderstanding of Scripture is unhealthy, obviously. And so, um, even though I, I respect my Calvinistic friends, I don't consider them heretics. I don't cast them out of the kingdom. I think their misinterpretation of certain passages leads to an unhealthy conclusion about God's character and His intentions with regard to the gospel. And therefore, I think it should be called out as such. But I think you can call out error while still showing respect to the people that you're calling out. Um, and so the, I, I think that's the important thing is that it's a mark of maturity to be able to disagree with somebody without being overly disagreeable. Um, anybody who's married knows this. You're going to have disagreements with your spouse and your children and your parents and anybody else else in your life. That's, that's a part of life. You're going to disagree with each other. Now, some people have the mentality, and I'm one of these people, by the way, I'm an avoider in the relationship. I avoid controversy and conflict, believe it or not, despite my ministry, uh, what I do, uh, confronting Calvinism, I, I avoid, and you ask my wife, 
whenever there's a conflict, I tend to, to run away from it and avoid it and ignore it. Um, and sometimes the mentality is if I don't talk about the conflict, then it'll just go away. But my wife happens to be a counselor and she knows better. And I've learned this uh, not only from her, but from experience is that ignoring a conflict actually causes more of a division and more strife in the long haul. And so what's the better alternative to confront the conflict in love? In other words, to, if you have a feeling that's different than that of your spouse, what do you do? You go and you talk to them about your conflict. Honey, I disagree with you because of this. Um, here's what I feel. Here's why, you know, you have a conversation. You show them love and respect. You listen to them. You try to understand why they believe what they believe, why they have the view they hold to. You, you reason with them. Uh, you try to persuade them to your position possibly or allow them to uh, you know, hear them out so that you know what they're saying, uh, those kinds of things. That's what healthy relationships look like. And the family of God has the same kinds of things happen with, with us. We have disagreements among each other. Now, some people just say, oh, well, just don't talk about it. Just put it, just stop it. Don't, don't talk about it. Um, you go, and, I, and I've had this message before. It's one of my pet peeves. Why aren't you out evangelizing? You know, what, talk, talk about this, go evangelize. Um, I had one guy message me that who happens to be kind of a quasi friend. We knew each other, you know, uh, over the years. And he kind of messaged me, Lighten, why are you, you know, doing this stuff on the podcast? You're, you're just wasting people's time. You should be, why aren't you using that time to go evangelize people? Why don't you go win people? Why don't you just hush up about this? Of course, he's reformed leaning. And so he didn't like that I was confronting his doctrines. And I happen to know the guy well enough as I pull up his Facebook page, because that's where he messaged me. And he has video after video and post after post of the NBA and all the stuff that's happening with the NBA and the game and the scores of the game, this, this, and this, and this. And I just, in love, I just said, brother, um, not trying to be mean, not trying to step on toes. I'm, I, I like sports too and all that kind of stuff. I'm nothing. I said, but I guarantee you, I spend less time talking about the doctrines of God's grace and love and provision for humanity than you do watching sports and commenting on sports. And that's about a ball being put into a hoop. Not trying to step on your toes, but I'm pretty sure I stomped on his toes a little bit with that comment. Because the truth of the matter is, men spend up anywhere from four to eight hours a day engaged in sports and pastimes. I'm a theology geek. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I actually have quiet times. I actually practice personal evangelism. I actually do have a job where I do evangelism for a living, plan evangelistic events. And so I am involved in evangelism, but I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think it's possible to spend a few hours a week talking theology, producing a podcast that's confronting what I consider an important issue within the church. And that is how we believe about God's provision and his grace and what the gospel entails. Um, I think that we can talk about those things. And I hopefully do that respectfully. I, I slip up sometimes. I've apologized a few times on a program or two where I said, I should have said it this way, or I should have said it that way. I should have been more respectful. Um, and so that, that's just a part of that, the, the, the process of, of maturing in, in our relationships with one another. And so, yeah, it's an important subject. And it, it kind of like that old saying goes, um, how does evil prevail when good men do nothing? Well, how does false teaching prevail? Well, when good men do nothing. And, when, and, and I'm not trying to equate Calvinism with pure evil, I, I just obviously believe the same thing they believe about me is that they're teaching a false interpretation. They, they have we interpreted some things falsely, and it's leading to a false understanding of, of God and his character and the way he intends for the gospel to be proclaimed. And that could cause further harm within the church, as I think his story, history uh, shows us. History tends to repeat itself. Um, and when Calvinism rises up, the four times it's risen up over the last 500 years, and Al Mohler talks about this too. Phil Johnson talks about this with Grace to Youth Ministries. Um, it's risen up about four times over the last 500 years, and it ends up dying back out. And Phil Johnson talks about the reason it dies back out every time is because it's overtaken by high or ultra or hyper Calvinists who end up eating itself. You know, and They end up eating themselves, and it'll end up killing itself. Um, which he's predicting will happen again, I'm, I'm assuming. And, and I, I, I 
I tend to agree with that. I, I tend to think that's probably, I already see some of that happening uh, in our world around us, that Calvinism tends to eat its own and eventually it'll die back out. Now, either, and I'm saying this in love to my Calvinist friends, either that's happening because the system itself is not a tenable, workable way of logic and life, uh, and, it, and it doesn't hold theological water, um, or it's because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed for it to rise up and eat itself and die back out four times. It, it's really the only two options, because on Calvinism, God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, which would include the rising up and the dying out of Calvinism over the years. And this is one of the things that I push back on just to say, you know, either either I'm right in standing for the glory of God with regard to this doctrine, or God has decreed for me to be wrong for his glory. I, I really feel like I'm in a pretty safe place with those two options, because if God decrees all things that come to pass, as Calvinists claim, then that means he decreed Leighton Flowers to start, start a podcast denouncing the Calvinistic interpretation of passages like Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and John 6, the pillar texts that really are, are the, the major doctrines that are typically uh, used or the major passages that are typically used to, to uh, support Calvinistic doctrine. Um, and so th these are the kinds of reasons I think that, that these things have to be addressed, but can be addressed in love. So let's, you, you mentioned that word sovereignty. Uh, let, let's talk about that word a minute, because that is a word um, that you hear often uh, in this discussion. And it's some, I call it a buzzword. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's something that you hear our Calvinistic brothers and sisters using a lot when talking about all kinds of things, particularly salvation. And right. it seems to me that some, I don't know that all, but some think that if if you're a non-Calvinist, somehow you're diminishing the sovereignty of God, or you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, or um, uh, you know, and I think are we defining the term differently? Yeah. Because I I believe in the sovereignty of God. I, 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 I think I believe in the sovereignty of God as strong as anybody. But I don't, Absolutely. I don't think that uh, I, I think a sovereign God can choose to decree to give man a free will. Right. Um, I think. You know, so I just wanted to hear your your thoughts on that that idea sure. of sovereignty. And, and well, I, I even have an article there at Sociology One Hundred and One uh, titled "Saving Sovereignty," uh, and interestingly, I actually quote from and cite the article written by a Calvinist who is actually um, giving some rebuke to his own Calvinistic camp and saying, we're misusing the word sovereignty. And he actually says, I agree with what's called theistic determinism, that God determines all things that come to pass ultimately by sovereign decree. He, he actually believes that, but he says sovereignty is the wrong word. Sovereignty means God has the right to rule however he wants to rule. It doesn't mean that God meticulously, providentially, determines men's thoughts, actions, and deeds. And so he actually makes the case for the word meticulous providence, where he says, it's one thing to say that sovereignty, that God is sovereign. We all, we all agree, even Arminians and non-Calvinists agree God's sovereign. But how does he use his sovereignty? How does he choose to rule? And, and Calvinists believe he uses meticulous providence to rule. Uh, the non-Calvinist disagrees with that. We are indeterminist in that respect. And so the, the word sovereignty has kind of been, for lack of a better word, kind of hijacked or kind of taken on by, by men like Piper and really popularized in, in books like Mac Piper and MacArthur and Sproul or the big dogs that have been using this word sovereignty as if it equals Calvinism, i.e. determinism, this concept and idea that God is the one who sovereignly and unchangeably decides who will believe and who won't. Uh, and the word sovereign, therefore, has kind of been redefined. Sovereign in the dictionary just means like a king is sovereign over his nation, which means he rules his nation. He's, he's, he's able to do as he pleases with regard to the nation that he rules. Uh, God rules the cosmos. He rules all things. He is in control even. But just saying somebody's in control doesn't mean determinism. For example, Phil, our uh, our supervisor is the the director of our church health team at the Texas Baptist Convention, right? 
he's in control, you could say, of that department. Now, does that mean he micromanages my department in evangelism because he happens to be in control of our team? No, he chooses to allow me to have dominion over evangelism and the group that I am overseeing. He chooses to allow for me to have choice within my department on how I hire and fire and and these kinds of things that I might do in my department, right? Well, so that doesn't mean he's he's lost his control. It means that he has the right to control how he wills. In the same way, we see, for example, in Psalm 115.3, God sits in heavens and he does as he pleases. That's a really good definition of sovereignty. God does what he wants to do. But you can't just assume that God wants to meticulously, providentially control the thoughts, actions, and deeds of creation. In fact, in verse 16 of that same chapter in Psalm 115, it says, the heavenlies belong to the Father, but the earth he has given over to man. Well, that seems to suggest that there's a level of dominion or control that the principalities of this world have as rulers and powers and authorities, as Galatians calls them, over this world, which is why we would pray, God, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if, if God's will is always meticulously being done here on earth uh, by sovereign decree, then why in the world would he call us to pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven? We should be praying, God, thank you that your will is always <laughs> being done here on earth as it is in heaven. We shouldn't be saying, God, please let it be. Um, and, and this is just one of many of the contradictions I see within, I think, the more intuitive reading of the scriptures with regard to the claims of Calvinism and meticulous providence, i.e. sovereignty, that they're trying to impose upon and over the reading of the scriptures. And so uh, th this concept of, of theistic determinism uh, is this idea that, again, as the Westminster Confession, which is a Calvinistic confession, says that God has uh, sovereignly or unchangeably decreed or determined whatsoever comes to pass. So every thought, action, deed, uh, R.C. Sproul talks about every molecule, every, every single thing comes to pass, not because God foresees it and allows it, even says that in the Westminster. That's not what we're talking about. He says it happens because God decreed it. In other words, it is a causal decree. Now, there are some Calvinists who take issue with this. Like I said, it's not a monolithic group. There are some lower forms, more modified forms of quote unquote Calvinism. That's not Calvinism qua Calvinism. That's not what John Calvin taught, for example. So I always push back on my uh, modified Calvinistic friends and say, okay, it, it's fine for you to modify Calvinism. I'm, I'm, I'm standing against it too, but don't accuse me of not understanding Calvinism when I bring a critique against the theistic determinism of what Calvin teaches, what John Piper teaches, what R.C. Sproul teaches, because all of them hold to theistic determinism very clearly in their writings. And therefore, that's, that's what I'm standing against theologically is this concept of theistic determinism, what they call sovereignty, i.e. that God has sovereignly and unchangeably ordained, decreed, causally determined every single thing that comes to pass, including horrible, heinous evil that we could uh, possibly imagine within our world. And this is where I do believe that the, that the claims of Calvinists, though Calvinists are not intending to call God... Uh, a monstrous or, or, or they're not intending to blame God for sin and for evil. I, I don't see how you can adopt the claims of Calvinism and not conclude that God is to be blamed for evil. Um, Calvinists will say, we don't believe God's the author of evil because the Bible says God does not author confusion and evil is confusion. Evil is uh, uh, all kinds of, of horrible things that happen. And so they'll say, God's not the author of that. But then they'll say something like, but God does causally and unchangeably bring all things to pass. Now, it sounds like to me, A equals not A. It sounds like a blatant contradiction. Now, a Calvinist won't say it's a contradiction because to claim something's a contradiction is to nullify it. It's to make it false. It's to falsify it. And so what they'll say is, no, it's a mystery. It's an antinomy, as J.I. Packer puts it. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's just un unfathomable. It's a paradox. Uh, MacArthur says, um, yes, God determines everything, but yes, you're still responsible for your choices. And we just don't know how that works. And, and even there's a famous quote from John Calvin, even saying something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't even, I don't even try to meditate on these mysteries anymore 
because it, I, I don't know how God's not guilty for what he determines to happen, but we just know that he's not. But yes, he does still causally determine everything, but we just, we just don't believe he's guilty for it. And somehow men are responsible for their choices, but God is ultimately the one who controls their choices. And we don't know how that works. And I'm just saying, I don't think that's a mystery the Bible affords. I do think there are mysteries, but I, I think that's a blatant contradiction. And I think it's against what the Bible says about who God is. Um, in Jeremiah 19.5, the people are burning children to Melech, to, to the devil, ultimately, is what they're, they're sacrificing their children. Horrible, heinous evil. And God's rebuke to them is, what are you doing? He, he, he's, he's, he's rebuking them and says, I did not command it, nor did I decree it, nor did it even enter my mind. And he brings this rebuke on these people. Well, Calvinism says God decrees all things. Jeremiah 19.5 says, I didn't decree that. Um, you, you see in 1 John 2.16, that pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. Yet I've got quotes from John Piper from the Desiring God website saying that all things come from the hand of God, ultimately. Well, that would include pride and lust. If you mean all things, truly all things, all desires, thoughts, actions, deeds of all creation, if all of those things are from the hand of God, and the Apostle John says pride and lust aren't from the aren't, aren't from God, then I have to go with the Apostle John, not John Piper. Uh, James, when you're tempted, don't say that God tempted you. He 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 can't be tempted. He doesn't tempt anyone. Yet, according to Calvinism. God not only sovereignly decrees all temptations, but everyone who falls into temptation, he decreed it sovereignly and unchangeably, where they could not have done otherwise. That, that, that's, I think, stands in stark opposition to what we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says no temptation will overtake you and be too big for you to bear. In other words, you will always have a way out. You will always have a way of escape. That's free will. That's the ability to resist the temptation when it comes to you. And I believe we have that legitimate, real ability to resist temptation. Um, and therefore, I, I can't see any reason to adopt a more philosophical form of theistic determinism, which is ultimately putting all things that come to pass on this quote-unquote sovereign decree that God unchangeably fixed before the foundation of the world, and it can't be other than what he has fixed it to be, which is that ultimately certain people are going to be saved. These people are going to be damned. They really have no choice in the matter uh, as far as what we intuitively think of choice, the selection between available options. Because if you're not elect, it's not really an available, available option for you because Christ didn't die for you. And I have a problem with that. I don't think that that's a biblical uh, concept at all. I agree. I uh, preached, uh, preached a series of messages through the book of Acts. Uh, here at our church, and I was talking about the passage where um, God kept promising Paul he was going to get to Rome, and those men had taken a vow, uh, several men had taken a vow that they were going to kill him, they weren't going to eat or drink right. anything until he was dead. And I see the sovereignty of God in, in the fact that God has decreed Paul is going to get to Rome. And so even though these men have a free will, their free will is limited. They, they can't override the purposes of God. God is going to ensure Paul is going to get to Rome, while at the same time uh, giving them a limited free will to try to kill Paul, to try to sure. you know, do these things. But I think even in the sovereignty, you see the sovereignty of God in, was it Paul's nephew or someone in Paul's family overheard the, kind of overheard the conversation and reported it to Paul, and then he reported it to the authorities. And Paul got safely to Rome, just like God said he would. Um, and I think sometimes yeah. they think that when we talk about free will, it's almost like we're meaning an unlimited free will. And, and right. know, our, our, our free will is limited. We can't choose to be an angel. We can't choose to be God. We can't choose to fly off of a, you know, grow wings and fly off of a, a building. Uh, we have a limited free will, but that that free will is doesn't um, limit God's sovereignty at all. And God, right. in his sovereignty, has given us that limited free will. In his sovereignty, yeah. he's given us the, the uh, opportunity to to respond to the, the preached word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say yes or to say no. Yep. I don't think that 
diminishes God's sovereignty at all. Well, I agree. Uh, I had a debate with um, a couple of Calvinist guys in Houston and uh, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, who works with me there at Trinity, was um, kind of my partner uh, in that debate. And they they kept kind of they were kind of a little bit angry Calvinist. Unfortunately, I didn't realize they were going to be quite so angry and and, uh, kind of shouting us down kind of a thing. But I wouldn't have ever agreed to the debate if I thought that was going to be the case. But they kept talking about how we believe we could thwart the will of God, you know, and that, that we were going to somehow overpower God and that we were our us puny little people were somehow bigger and stronger than God. And and Dr. Pritchett brilliantly gets up and says, free will is not a superpower. You know, we're not we're not trying to say that we have the power to thwart God. We're not trying to say our free will is bigger than God's will. We're trying to say that God gives us choices, just like parents could give their children choices. Doesn't mean that the the parent is weaker than the child just because the parent chooses to allow a child to make a choice. Um, It's it's absurd. Um, And so we're we're not trying to, as you rightly said, we're not trying to suggest that we just have unlimited, unfettered uh, abilities to do anything and everything. Um, The analogy I've used before is that of a chessboard. you know, the Calvinistic concept of providence, meticulous providence, is that ultimately, in order for God to be truly sovereign, as they defined it, he has to control the white pieces and the black pieces. He has to control both evil and good. He has to control everything in order to ultimately get his purposes accomplished. And so they'll say God declares the end from the beginning. Therefore, God must determine the end from the beginning, which means he determines every move that he makes on the chessboard as well as every move that every opponent makes on the chessboard of life. Um, And that's one view of providence. That's one view of, quote unquote, sovereignty, if you will. Well, I think that's a very low view of sovereignty, personally. Um, I think a higher view of sovereignty is to suggest that because God's so much better at chess, that no matter what free actions any opponent makes, he is going to defeat him because they're limited to only the moves that are allowed on a chessboard. You can't you know, just grab the rook and say, well, I'm going to make it float over here and it's going to get a laser and it's going to blow up the king. You know, you've got to play within the confines of the chess match, right? Well, God is the the creator of the chessboard. And guess what? He's a lot better at chess than you are. He's a lot better at chess than everybody is put together. And God is able to bring about his purposes, the victory, because of his ability, not because he controls his enemies, but because he's better than his enemies. And this is a higher view, in my estimation, of providence and sovereignty, because he's bringing about his purposes despite and sometimes even through the, the moves of his opponents. And so which one are you going to go home and brag about if you're walking in the park and you come along an old man who keeps getting up and going to both sides of the chessboard and moving both pieces? And, and you ask him, sir, you know, why, why are you playing both sides of the chessboard? And he says, well, it's the only way I can figure out how to ensure my victory. Versus you go down the boardwalk a little ways and you see another man with a, just endless a number of opponents, as far as the eye can see, the best chess masters in all the world lining up. And he's sitting there drinking his drink, barely even paying attention, just beating them one at a time. Just not even effort and just, just destroying every opponent. Which one are you going to go home bragging about? Obviously the second one. Why? because he's so much better at chess than his opponents. He's not controlling his opponents. Didn't have to. He's just better at chess than they are. And he's able to bring about his purposes, his victory, despite any move of any opponent that he comes against. I don't know about you, but I have a lot higher view. I think our view of high, is a much, much higher view of sovereignty and providence than that of the Calvinist, because ultimately the view of the Calvinistic version of God in their philosophical worldview of theistic determinism is the only way God can ensure his victory is if he ultimately controls himself and his enemies. And I think that's a, a really low view of God. I agree. I think that's an awesome illustration. And um, I definitely think when you understand it that way and in, in, in that light, it, it definitely shows that, you know, when we understand sovereignty as, as it biblically illustrated, you know, uh, and understood that, being a non-Calvinist does not diminish God's sovereignty at all. Um, That's right. I think it accentuates his sovereignty, actually. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but I did have uh, one more quote for you. Um, I interviewed another friend of mine who, uh, he's a pastor in the Richmond area. Right. And um, he preached a message entitled Pitfalls of Calvinism. And in that message, he said 
that Calvinism destroys any real contingency and thus any real freedom. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Why or why not? Well, it comes down to the definition of terms. Obviously, a Calvinist would disagree with that statement because they would say, some of them, depending on who you're talking to, but most compatibilist, compatibilistic Calvinists would say, no, we, we believe in a form of freedom of the will. Uh, we don't believe they're just robots out there just doing all this stuff. We, we believe in what is called, a Calvinist would say, compatibilism. And what that means is that men are doing what they want to do. You know, they're, they're acting in accordance with their nature. Now, behind the scenes of that, that, you know, whenever they say they're acting in accordance with their nature, that sounds like you're giving them ownership of their choices because you're saying it's their nature that's ultimately determining their actions, their choices and their actions. But behind the scenes is when you ask them the question, well, who determined their nature? God's decree does. Uh, in other words, you're born with a nature that hates the things of God and will always do that which is sinful and wrong unless God elected you before you were born and changes your nature into one that will obey. And so it's just another way of promoting determinism, but it gives a subtle sense of ownership to say, well, people are acting in accordance with their nature, therefore they're free and accountable. And so I would agree with the statement because I don't believe the definition of freedom from the Calvinistic vantage point gives any basis of human responsibility or culpability for the choices and actions of men, because ultimately anything a person desires to do is completely tied to the desire of God in the matter. In other words, a person is choosing to sin because God decreed for the desire for that person to sin. And so to say that, well, people are doing what they want, therefore they're accountable, doesn't mean anything on a world where ultimately somebody other than the agent themselves is controlling the desire. And the illustration I've used before is, is if somehow I were to, uh, you know, cast a spell on you, or I were to give you a potion, or somehow through whatever means you want to imagine that they are, let's say I even use whatever the means God uses to, to ultimately control uh, people's nature in, in a sovereign, quote unquote, sovereign way. And I took over your nature, Daryl, to where I ultimately decide what you will desire most. And for whatever reason, I program within my uh, system of, of thinking, I program you to want to rob the next bank. You know, you just have this overwhelming desire to rob a bank. And I'm the one who ultimately gave you that desire. And so you go and rob a bank. Well, did you really go rob the bank or did I cause you to go rob a bank? Well, I think intuitively, we all know exactly what happened. In fact, in front of a jury of our peers, if it was found out that I had this ability to control your desires in that way, that anybody and everybody in that jury would say, Daryl's not guilty, Leighton's guilty. Why? Because Leighton ultimately was in control of the desires of Daryl. And therefore, I think intuitively we know deep down that whoever's in control of the desire of the agent is ultimately controlling that agent and therefore is ultimately culpable for what that agent ends up doing. Now, the Calvinist, I think when they hear things like that, they'll, they'll resort to special pleading and they'll just say, no, that's not the case with God. Who are you to question God? Quoting erroneously out of Romans 9 to say, well, God can, can do what he wants to. Um, and you're not to question him. Now, men, men can't do it. You know, Leighton, if you did that to Daryl, you would be, yes, you would be in the wrong, but we're talking about God here. God can do this. And again, this is, this is what's called special pleading, where you, you just kind of uh, ad hoc say, no, it's okay when, when God does this. This, this removes objective morality, um, where another argument that oftentimes we as apologists will make with regard to the proof of, of God's existence is the fact that morality is objective. In other words, for example, is it always wrong to uh, torture babies for fun? I think most people would say, yeah, that's objectively a wrong thing to do. Well, then somebody, and, and again, forgive me for those in your audience who may be not familiar with philosophical arguments and, and apologetic debates, because sometimes these heinous kind of examples come across very harsh to a person who's not in the philosophical world. But these kinds of presuppositional arguments are made quite regularly among us apologists and philosophers. And so forgive the, the harshness of this analogy of torturing babies. I know that's, that's harsh. 
but we objectively would say it is wrong for anybody to torture a baby for the fun of it, right? Well, suppose somebody comes along and says, well, we have proof that Jesus tortured babies for the fun of it. Now do you say it's wrong? You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's special pleading to say, well, oh, okay, well, if Jesus did it, then it must be okay. It must be okay to do it. It's right now that we know that Jesus did it. Now we can say it's subjective as whether that was wrong or right, because if Jesus does it, then it's okay. Well, that's special pleading. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And therefore, if, if the idea of God causally determining people's desires to do something that they could not have done otherwise is, is intuitively seen as wrong, then you have to give a really strong biblical answer to that objection. Uh, you can't just special plead and say, nuh-uh, because I said so. You've got to have a really strong argument as to why you would claim something that seems so intuitively false to us. And that's why we're pushing back on these kinds of claims. They're philosophically based, a lot of them. Um, and, and they're based on erroneous, I think, conclusions that, that I think there's much better philosophical answers uh, to, the, to the nature of God and to how God works within time and space, though he's an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful being. That's, that's mystery beyond full comprehension, yes, but I don't think we need to adopt uh, contradictions, and we certainly don't need to adopt anything that would impugn the holiness or the character of God. Amen. Well, thank you so much again for taking time to be with us today. You, you've certainly shed a lot of light on the subject, and um, I appreciate your ministry and appreciate your, your willingness to, to speak with me. Well, it's been my pleasure, Daryl. Thank you. God bless you, brother. Mm-hmm.